and welcome again to another class our virtual class that gets a chance to go out I think I checked last time it was like eight states and about four or five foreign countries and uh, what a great opportunity this is to come together and view this and we're doing this on uh, uh, August 2nd uh, whenever you may view it but we're doing this on Sunday August 2nd and uh, we're glad to have everybody uh, join in with us and grateful when you check in and let us know where you're coming from. Now I did have uh, one suggestion uh, as we get started today uh, as we're going to be talking about betwixt the, the doubt and the dawn. Uh, somebody suggested that maybe we need a little bit of a recap in, in how, uh, what, what uh, promises and classes that we've been looking at in the past. And I'm not going to go back over all of them, but let me just give you a quick idea of some of the classes that we've been looking at just in uh, the, the past recent history and some of the ideas. Um, we talked about the fact that the Lord desperately seeks reconciliation with us. And we talked about how reconciliation is actually the, the previous word for the atonement. So when we look at the word atonement, if we think that he's wanting to reconcile, be closer to us, uh, that that gives us a sense of what that uh, sacrifice by the Savior was really supposed to be for us and it was to be a reconciliation so we talked about that um, we talked about the fact that uh, our wayward children are not cast off forever that how Lehi worried that that was going to be the case with Laman and Lemuel and especially for his um, uh, grandchildren and great-grandchildren uh, coming from Laman and Lemuel that they might then be lost uh, forever and and he says no he, one of those promises that we're looking at is his promise to bring them home to bring them back so that they can be reconciled with him the same as we are and that that process goes on on both sides of the veil to reconcile us uh, to him now also um, we have also talked about in recent weeks uh, this understanding of him making promises that are recorded in the scriptures by prophets, uh, that they're going to record those covenants and promises to us. And all we're needing to do is listen, have ears to hear that can respond to him. And so we need to hear and then respond to those promises. And that is how he moves us forward. And it's in that responding that we actually keep the commandments. You know, if we love him, if we're reconciled to him, we keep the commandments to be further transformed by those commandments to become people that can live with him. Because we've talked about those that will live in the celestial kingdom are those that have become like him. And he transforms us over time into people that can literally uh, do that. Um, we also talked about the fact that sometimes when we're not necessarily doing everything that we need to be, uh, sometimes we get mired in shame. Uh, but we need to constantly keep in mind, God doesn't give us feelings of shame. That's not how he works. That's the other guy. The other guy does the shame thing. Uh, and, and our God 
does the love thing and the want to draw us back to him and our and our shaming ourselves is is quick hide we're going to hide from him at a time and he's saying where are you i want to i want to have you with me uh, shame causes us to separate and be distant from him and he says i'm going i will bring you home uh, the entire book of isaiah is about i will bring you home uh, despite all the things that you've done, just listen to me, follow the promises. So the idea was when we started talking about the promises of the fathers, we really were anxious to be able to kind of chronicle all of the places that there are covenants and promises made to us, what they are, and then specifically, I hope you've been catching the fact that uh, there is not just an academic exercise of I can repeat and I can regurgitate those 10 promises or 20 promises that he made uh, and answer them on a test. But if we remember the covenants and the promises that he's made to us, it should change us. And it should affect us in the, the things that we go through on a daily basis. They become very, very relevant to our daily lives and our daily experience. And we keep running into that. And, and today is going to be really one of those days where you say, what do those promises mean to me? Wow, what do those promises mean to me? And what do they mean later this afternoon and tomorrow uh, in all the things that I'm about? How will those promises change me and make my life just a little bit easier and a little bit more able to, to move forward uh, in the things that I'm asked to do? So in order to set that up, uh, let me start today with uh, something I've kind of been wanting to share for a little while. I was really touched uh, a while back by watching uh, a wonderful film called The Darkest Hour. And, and what it did was it chronicled uh, uh, Sir Winston Churchill becoming prime minister right in the middle of World War II uh, and right at the time that Nazi Germany was sweeping through uh, all of Europe uh, and as, as they were just finishing up conquering Belgium and France, it fell to the English government and specifically to Winston Churchill to have to make a decision. Would they just try and, and uh, have some kind of a truce with Hitler? Or would they stand firm, uh, back uh, upright, and say, we will fight to the very last person, and they will not invade or conquer our island? And, and the darkest hour is watching Winston Churchill try to make that very difficult decision and committing a, a nation to the pain and suffering that might be involved in pushing back uh, against the Nazi war uh, regime. Well, there's a fictitious moment that happens in that, in that movie that really touched me. Um, on his way to Westminster to decide what he's going to say to the to Parliament, uh, he opts uh, in the movie uh, to ride the the London Underground, to ride the train, so that he get a chance to talk specifically to the people themselves on the train to see what they thought should happen. 
as he is pulling the audience and talking to the people in this train. Uh, this comes this moment where they're just they're pretty resolute in saying, no, we will fight, uh, we will push back, um, and we will not surrender. He's touched by that. And in the movie, he remembers an ancient lay, an ancient poem about uh, a, a hero from the fall of um, the, the fall of Rome. And what he turns and quotes to a little girl basically is this. Uh, then out spake brave Horatius, the captain of the gate. To every man upon the earth, death cometh soon or late. And how can man die better than facing fearful odds for the ashes of his fathers and the temples of his gods. In other words, in this uncertain times, if we must die, let us die well, defending what is most important to us, the ashes of our fathers, those that have gone before, and the temples of our gods. Now, I believe that there are times in our own life, we're going to talk about this, we, when we sit in deep uncertainty about how to go forward, whether we fight, whether we surrender, whether, and, we, and we're trying to summon up the, the strength of will to push back and to try and, and, and beat the odds that are, that are placed against us. To a certain extent, I've been very aware watching how we've responded to the pandemic. And for those of you who may be more easygoing and kind of take things as it comes, you, I think you have fared a little better in all the uncertainty than those of you who desire to know what needs to happen and want to move forward and you don't know what to plan for, you don't know what's coming next. And you feel a rise of fear about what do I do? How do I fight? Where do we go next? And we sit in doubt, not knowing how to prepare. So, to a, to a certain extent there, then, I think uh, the question then is, for what promises are we still waiting? We have a sense about how it ends. So what promises are we waiting for? And, and as we're waiting, what kind of doubts rise up in us about what we've been waiting for? Have we been waiting in vain? Have we been, have we been waiting for the wrong things? I was, I was aware 20-some-odd uh, years ago, a little over 20 years, as my mom lay dying of, of cancer, and probably one of the last conversations that, that I had with her on this earth, my mother was a bit disturbed at that point by her patriarchal blessing. And her patriarchal blessing had said that she would preach the gospel in many lands. Now, she'd been able to go on a, a mission to Canada and one to Ireland, but she still felt unfulfilled as if there's many lands and many people 
hadn't really happened the way that she had hoped for. And that that seemed like promises unfulfilled to her. I've thought about her concern often. As I, through my traveling uh, and leading groups in different parts of the world, have been able to teach in places like Malta and uh, the Sea of Galilee and, and in uh, Belize and in Rome and in Athens at Mars Hill. And I have found myself teaching in many lands. And it took a while before I ultimately realized that I was fulfilling in a measure the promises that had been made to my mom. We wouldn't have known at that point as she lay dying how those promises would be fulfilled. They have been. They weren't fulfilled through her. They were fulfilled through her son. We don't always see how promises ha are going to be fulfilled the way that the Lord has promised. And we have to wait. And that waiting can be excruciating. And that waiting can be that time when we just... Uh, our, our, our faith is tested. Have we waited in vain? Have we waited for the wrong things? What were we thinking? Were we being naive in, in what we chose uh, to do? Now, I want to I demonstrate with uh, about three stories uh, today, if you'll, if you'll bear with me, on, on how we balance the waiting with our faith and how we balance doubt against hope as we try and determine each day to kind of move forward in the things that the Lord has promised and, and asked us to do uh, in response. Now, uh, I find it interesting that um, we have these experiences where we say from the beginning of the world, uh, men have not perceived by ear Neither have any I seen the great things the Lord has prepared for those who are going to wait and those that have to wait. Now, in that waiting, what, what form does that, does that take? There is uh, a, a, a wonderful author, uh, Deidre Green, has said, has pointed recently in the book of Jacob. The book of Jacob says, in order to get his people to believe on Christ, she said, Jacob is saying to the people, we wanted them to view his death. Strange, isn't it? As LDS members of the church, we have this tendency when we are looking at the final week, the Passion Week, we have a tendency to look at the Last Supper, to look at uh, Gethsemane, to quickly pass over his death. It's kind of gruesome. And then we want to jump immediately to resurrection morning and the joy that comes on that first Easter Sunday uh, as that happens. We really don't want to view his death very much. Um, now, I think that there is, a, there is a place for what an author called understanding the sacred Saturday uh, of the soul. Uh, 
that sacred Saturday. What was that? Picture for a minute, if you will. Sometimes you try and put things in perspective. It helps. Picture yourself as his, as the Savior's family and close disciples that stood there at the cross and wept as he was tortured, wept as he was nailed to the cross, watched over the hours as his life bled out. And then in the, in the coming gloom, they would have heard him call out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And as we've looked at that, we've said, there appears to be in those words and in the phrasing in Aramaic, a confusion on the part of the Savior. Almost as if he's saying, Father, why did you leave me here? An expectation that maybe this would culminate in him being able to rise up and off the cross. An expectation on the part of the disciples that at some point in this torture that the true Messiah would rise up and come off the cross and, and the revolution would begin in full. And it didn't happen. In fact, they heard his confusion, they heard his dying words, and they watched him die. And then they watched him as the body was taken down and placed in the tomb. And then they went home. Picture that gathering, will you? In that some little enclave as they huddle together as disciples and look across the table at each other and say, what happened? And he talked about three days, but he died. The... The, those that were mocking him was right. He could save others, but he couldn't save himself. And he's dead. Now what do we do? They sleep however they can. The next morning, on that sacred Saturday, they awake and look at each other, and nothing has changed. He's still in the tomb. There's still a life to live. What are we going to do now? And those doubts were there. We heard these things. We had hope. We had faith. And now we're filled with doubts and fear and confusion that it didn't turn out the way that we wanted it to. Now, if you read the text carefully, you can really see that these disciples never did come to a resolution of that on Sacred Saturday. While he was in the midst of rescuing those on the other side of the veil, whose moment had come, the rescue had not yet come to those on this side of the veil, and they had no knowledge and no understanding on which to pin their hopes. That's why the next morning, on, on Easter morning, we see Mary coming very early in the morning, but she's not coming expecting to see a resurrected Christ. She's coming with the spices and things 
to do a final taking care of a dead body and the death of her Lord. She is not expecting to see a resurrected Christ stand before her. And I believe that Mary, as with the others, would have woke up on Sunday morning. Now the week is beginning new. Now where do we go from here? And he's still dead. Sacred Saturday is, the, is that place that we go to. And I think it's midway between our trials and the rescue that we sit in this valley of sacred Saturday not knowing, not, not being able to guess where our, our fear and our pain mingles pretty clearly with our hope and our faith and our doubts push back against our faith. And this unsettling place is a place where we doubt and wonder and try to determine where we go next. Now, let me give you another example of where I think this this comes into play. Story two. It's, it's not a surprise, I think, that um, we have this story of the man with the possessed uh, son who is going to come and, uh, and while, while Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration and having this great experience up here, all this man knows is that he has a son that has been possessed and, and struggled all of his life, oftentimes out of control, and he finds the local disciples of Christ, this Jesus who was healing people, here's his local disciples at the bottom of the hill, and he brings his son to those people, these disciples who can't do anything about it. And, and oh, sorry, we're just trying to coordinate some here, okay? Um, he can't do anything about it. The, the disciples can't do anything about it. So here's this father, and he is, uh, so he's excited when he actually sees uh, Jesus and, and Peter, James, and John come down the mountain. And he says, I asked your disciples to cast out this demon, but they weren't able to do it. And Jesus replies, Oh, faithful, a faithless generation, how long will I be with you? And how long can I endure and carry you? Bring him to me. Now that may sound harsh, but it's a real fear in the heart of the Savior that says, I will soon be gone. And how are you going to do this? How will healings take place when I'm no longer with you? It's not as harsh as it might sound initially. And the father brought him to Jesus, and when the spirit inside him immediately shook him, and, and, 
and he and Jesus asked the the boy's father, "How long has he been? How, been, how long has it been like this?" And he says, "From childhood. Many times it's thrown him into the fire or the water, that it might kill him. Then all of his life. Now." I want to show you a difference in the way that the Savior responds, uh, and it's the difference between the King James Version and some of the, the, newer, the newer LDS translations of the Bible that actually clarify uh, some things. The King James uh, uh, writers and, and translators had access to X amount of Greek documents. Newer translations, our LDS translation especially has access to more so we're actually to see and we get a clear sense so let's go back and here, here's in the King James Version the Savior's response to this man that's the one we know if thou canst do anything the Father says have compassion on us and help us Jesus says if thou canst believe all things are possible to him that believeth and straightway the father, the father of the child cried out and said with tears Lord I believe help thou my unbelief. Now, let me now read it in the in the newer translation. And as we do so, to really capture what happens right at this moment, it's important to remember that the very first gospel that was available to the people was the gospel of Mark, and it was done as a theatrical play. Most people couldn't read. Uh, they were illiterate. And, and as they were illiterate, then they did it in the, the gospel was uh, then shared in true Roman theater fashion. The book of Mark was written to be performed as a, as a play. And it was. So sometimes when you read things in Mark, and especially as we get better translations, you will see the markers that marked it as a play. And if you'll do that, you can actually be drawn in to what uh, the writers of the book of Mark were trying to convey what the Savior was doing. This is one of those moments. In uh, the Wayman translation, Mark 9 says this. He says, but if you are able, the Father says, if you are able Help us and have compassion on us. Kind of, remember uh, the times that, the sa that uh, Satan or others would taunt him and say, if you can do this, and there's, and there's echoes of it in this, if you're able to, to cast out this demon, uh, have help us and have compassion. And listen to what the Savior says. And, and Jesus said unto him, if you are able... <laughs> If you, if, if you are able, he says, and then, and I believe that at this point, the, the actor, this is my own belief of how this, how this might work, the actor would have possibly turned to the watching crowd listening to this performance of Mark and say, if you are able, all things are possible. To those that believe and to that one who believes 
What the Savior just did is say, you're going to put it on me if I'm able? Are you able? Can you do it? Can you summon up the faith enough to have this happen? This wasn't a failure. Him not being healed by my disciples wasn't a failure of my disciples. It was a failure of you to fully believe. All things are possible to him that believes. And that will be especially important after I'm gone. Now, all things are possible for the one who believes. And then and then the response of the father. Right away, the father of the child cried out, right away. Uh, King James says, straightway. Immediately, the father says, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, can you hear that sacred Saturday moment? I believe. Help my unbelief. And at that moment, that father's living in that sacred Saturday. Years ago, uh, Elder Ugdorf talked about uh, doubting our doubts. I think we have to doubt our doubts. But I also think we have to respect our doubts, recognize our doubts. Because we want to be able to have this flip a switch moment, don't we? When we go, okay, I'm going to go from uh, I don't believe to the Spirit spoke and now I believe. And it's not like that. There is a transitory experience I'm afraid that too often lately we've had people go, uh, I don't believe, I do believe, I find out some things about church history, I don't believe. In other words, I can't do believe and don't believe at the same space. And what this father is saying is, I can do believe and don't believe at the same time. It's a mix of the two. I can hope for promises to be fulfilled and doubt for promises that have not yet happened concurrently. That's that sacred Saturday huddled with other believers wondering what happened on the cross. What makes sacred Saturday so hard, I believe, is not so much the doubts it's the waiting. It's the waiting of not yet knowing what's going to occur. Waiting can be excruciating. Waiting can, where we don't know what's coming next, can seem to take forever. Waiting on when this pandemic will get better might be painful. We think we're getting better and then the cases go back up and now we're back in here, we're going to be in school or not or, you know, will my son ever be able to play Little League Baseball again? The sacred Saturday of our soul is how we handle 
waiting on the promises we have been given. Let me give you another one that I think is is uh, and difficult and one that we have to keep in mind. I call them Brigham's Battalion Boys. At the moment, when we talk about the unknown, we're talking about how uh, the church is as much in exile now, maybe, as it has been since that exodus from Nauvoo to the Great Salt Lake. At that point in 1845, 1846, 1847, the church was scattered across a thousand miles of prairie could gather intermittently but was scattered with an uncertain future ahead is there a place for us that God for us prepared far away in the west is it there one of the ways that Brigham found to be able to finance this expedition and the movement of thousands of people to the Great Salt Lake was that they opened conversations with the U.S. government, which was ironic since they were in the process of leaving the U.S., opened up conversations with the U.S. government that we would provide in, in America's war with Mexico, we would provide a battalion of men to fight in that war. The contract was they would fight and they would then donate their pay, their soldiers' pay, back to the church to be able to pay for supplies to get them out west. Now, that was a particular hardship for some of the members in that group, for people like my great-great-grandfather who was 19 and ready to serve, the Mormon battalion, he was glad to go, willing to go. But for those that had families that depended on these men to get them there, that was an incredible hardship. Brigham Young made a promise to those families of what he called the battalion boys, that if they would send their father, their brother, in this battalion, that he would make sure that those families made it to the Great Salt Lake. That was his promise. He made those promises, the battalion took off, and then he started off with his small little vanguard, and off they went to the Great Salt Lake. And as we know, they arrived uh, in, in July of 1847. We also know that Brigham only stayed in the valley for just a matter of just a few weeks because he was anxious to get back to winter quarters. Why? Because he desperately wanted to reconstitute the first presidency. The, the expedition in 1847 took place under the Quorum of Twelve. And he won, and Brigham Young wanted to reconstitute the first presidency so they would once again have a fully functioning quorum. So after just a few weeks, he, they, go, they begin their trek back to winter quarters. 
somewhere on the plains of Wyoming, uh, he runs into Party Pratt. And Party Pratt is with his company of, of saints. Now, you have to picture Party Pratt and his exuberance. Party Pratt is a little bit like um, I would have been accused by my family at times of being hard to travel with. Because if you got me out on the road with my family and we're barreling down the freeway, we're going to try and try between, go between Utah and Texas or something, uh, man, I'm wanting to skip potty breaks and, and stop at restaurants and historical sites because we are making great time. We're really moving. And we're, and we're doing great. Look how fast we're going. Isn't that awesome? That was Party Pratt. Party Pratt, as he comes across Wyoming, and here comes Brigham Young out of the Great Basin, Party Pratt is jubilant. Brigham, you can't believe what great time we're making. We have just been moving. We're going to be there soon. We're just doing great. These guys are awesome. You know? But when Brigham Young took a look at who was in Parley's company, he realized that Parley had chosen the most, the sturdiest, the most, uh, the strongest, and that he had left the families of the battalion boys behind. Some of which were still at winter quarters. Some were as far away as the Mississippi, still inside of Nauvoo, waiting to be rescued for a rescue that had never come. Brigham Young was furious. And Parley Pratt, in his own autobiography, records the fact that the scolding he receives from Brigham Young on the plane in Wyoming was by far the worst scolding he ever received in his life. And that he would have to go back to Brigham, hat in hand, fully apologetic for not following through and leaving these families behind. Brigham Young will then get back to winter quarters. The very first thing he will do is to go rescue the families of the battalion boys. And bring them into the body of saints to go get them. He had made a promise. A promise that had sounded hollow in the ears of people sitting at winter quarters. And especially hollow in the ears of those sitting on the west bank of the Mississippi. Still in view of Nauvoo. And nobody had come. To rescue them. Brothers and sisters, in our life, have we waited for rescues that seem to have never come? Have we waited in vain for promises that were supposed to be fulfilled in a patriarchal blessing 
in a promise made by a church leader. In a promise made even for by a family member. And we wait in that sacred Saturday of our soul waiting and our doubts are mingling with our hopes. And our grief is mingling with our faith. And we wait. Again, the Savior says all things come, all things will be given to those that wait on the Lord. But he didn't say how painful sometimes that waiting on the Lord would be. One of the reasons why we've taken time to be able to look at these promises and the covenants made to the fathers, A, we need to know that they were made and that we need to see that they are given with the intent that we will know what to look for and who to worship and how to worship as we wait in our sacred Saturdays. My heart goes out to those of you who have lost a spouse, for instance, and you were told kindly that they're waiting for you on the other side and that someday you'll see them again. And then you wake up the next morning and that still hasn't happened yet. And you're still waiting. And you're waiting because promises have been made and your heart clings to that hope. And it's a hope that is not yet there. I bear you my testimony that the Lord intends to keep his promises. The Lord will keep his promises. But he will keep his promises in his time and in his way if we will sit in our sacred Saturday, recognize that those, that those doubts are part of the process, and then cling to the hope and the promises that have been made. The Lord keeps his promises and he will do that for you. I pray that we will do that and I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.